words that could describe uh, that portion of scripture that we are looking at tonight. The second vision that Zechariah is given by God is as curious as it is short, isn't it? And if we are, as a congregation tonight, if we're going to have any hope of understanding what is going on in that vision there, then first of all, we've got to have a very, very firm grasp of the historical context that's going on here in Zechariah. And I know I've sat in your seat. Uh, I know as soon as a minister says we've got to talk about the historical context, then everyone kind of switches off and like, oh, fall asleep. But I would urge you not to do that because this is important. Please hear this. What do we know? We know that in 586 BC, a long time ago, we know that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army have come in, invaded, and destroyed Jerusalem and Israel. And we know that they have taken away the people of Israel. They've captured them, the people of Israel, people of God, and they have taken them away into captivity, right, where they are mistreated. We know that that's happened. What else do we know? We know that another empire, the Persian Empire, has years later risen up, and it's come over, and it has fought the Babylonians. It has destroyed the, the Babylonian Empire. And one of the very first things that that Persian Empire did was to say to the people of Israel, the ones in captivity, you're free. You can go back home. And we know that the people of God did. They leave captivity, they go back, and you can imagine what that's like, can you? After all of that mistreatment and all of that pain and misery, slavery, to go back home. And so they're going back and rejoicing in God. God is going to do wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things through us and for us now. But the scene that awaited them when they got back to Jerusalem, it was, it was a shocking scene. I mean, Jerusalem itself was now flattened. I mean, walls down, temple down. You know, it was, it was, it was a ruin. And all the enemies that had been around them before, they had now all moved into the land, their land. And so that initial burst of enthusiasm, you know, that initial excitement, we are coming home, that goes and it is replaced by an absolute despair for these people. You know, they get back into Jerusalem, materially things were really tough because the Persians taxed them like you wouldn't believe spiritually things were really really tough as well and 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 before you know it you've got the people of god who have come back with all this hope and they are tempted just to forget about god and just make the most of their material circumstances and it's into that situation can you imagine that situation it's into that situation that god speaks and god sends this man zechariah with these four verses that you've got in front of you. And so you say, okay, right, that's fine. Minister's done his job. We've got the, bought the historical context box. Tick, that's it done. We can move on. Ah, but I say to you, do you not see it's more than that, isn't it? Because now we know God's purpose here in this vision, don't we? See, think about it. These people are down. They're at a low spiritual level. They are absolutely despairing. God sends them this vision. Why? To encourage them. And to encourage them to godliness. 
And friends, when, I, when we see that, what I think we also see is that this vision tonight, it couldn't be any more relevant to us. Because isn't it the case that in this room tonight, maybe in your heart, there is real spiritual discouragement? Isn't it the case that tonight, some of us in here are at a very, very low spiritual ebb? You know, nowhere near where we should be as Christians. Isn't it the case that some of us are really, really discouraged? Do, do we not, you and I, do we not need encouragement and encouragement to godliness? Don't we? It's weird. Maybe. And peculiar. I don't know. Maybe. And brief, certainly. But perhaps this vision is exactly what you and I need tonight. So, if you haven't already, please have Scripture open in front of you. Zechariah chapter 1. Let's look at a few things that we see here. First of all, note with me that encouragement comes from past deliverance. Okay? So, we're going to, we're going to do past, present, future tonight. Okay? Encouragement comes from past deliverance. Now, we weren't in Zechariah last week. We had a guest preacher But if you were here a couple of weeks ago, surely you remember what it is that we are dealing with and what we are looking at tonight. This tonight, these four verses, is the second of, can you remember, is eight visions that Zechariah is given by God. And you remember that that sort of quite amazing detail? You see, all of these eight visions that Zechariah has, he has them all in the one night. Now, you know that thing that happens when you're watching a film Maybe you're watching this big sort of adventure film. There's a sort of crazy, intense scene going on in the film. And then for dramatic effect, what happens is suddenly there's a pause and there's, the screen goes black and then we're on to the next scene. Well, that's kind of what's happening at this point in Zechariah, isn't it? Isn't it? Like you've had in that first vision a pretty intense scene. Do you remember it? All the horses that we had last time around and all the myrtle trees and all that that was going on. The horses going throughout the world. And it's quite intense. And then there's this pause. And then we move into the second vision. So what does he see? What's going on in front of you in Zechariah? Well, the first thing I think we've got to deal with, if you look at verse 18, what's the first thing? We've got to deal with, <laughs> we've got to deal with the four horns. I don't you just love the question that Zechariah asks? He's asking the same question that I was asking when I'm preparing my sermon here. Because he's saying, what are these? You know, what, four horns? What, what on earth is, is this good question? Well, I'm determined that we do not go on a wild goose chase tonight. And it happens. It does happen, doesn't it? Like, people see this sort of stuff in Scripture, four horns. And they spend their whole, the rest of their life <laughs> trying to work out what these, you know, which four kings represented by these horns? Which four empires is God speaking about here? Now, I'm determined we don't do that. Partly because I think that would be barking up the wrong tree. Because you see, follow me here. In the book of Zechariah, the number four is important. If you look at the, the, the book of Zechariah as a whole, you see that four very often speaks about the idea of sort of totality 
or this you know, the idea of sort of completeness. I wonder, have you noticed that yet? Like, think about the, the, the vision last week. Remember what we had in that vision? We had four different types of horses that would do what? That would cover the whole of the earth going back and forward, right? For completeness. Then later on in the book of Zechariah, we're going to have four winds that cover the whole earth. Okay, a sense of totality again. So wait a minute, do you see? This isn't us here looking at these four horns and saying, okay, this is, all right, which different end of kings, which, no, no, it's not that. These four horns, this is one enemy that has won a total and a complete victory over the people of God and taken them away into captivity. Let me say that fits with the rest of this vision, doesn't it? Because perhaps surprisingly, Look, the emphasis on the first part of this vision. Remember last time around, the emphasis was on the power of God, wasn't it? Do you remember that? The omniscience of God, his, his sight and his knowledge. Remember that? Well, this vision, the stress is actually on the power of the people's enemy. That's what this is about. The power, the might, the sort of significance of the enemy. Think about it. That is why, what is the image? The image is a now I'm not suggesting anyone goes out tomorrow and gets a tattoo I'm not saying that at all but if you were getting a tattoo don't do it but if you were getting a tattoo and you wanted to get a tattoo with a symbol of power I don't know what we would go for like a lion or something like that a tasteful tattoo of a, a lion or maybe a sword something like that well do you see in the ancient world here If you want a symbol of strength and power, do you know what? It's a symbol of an animal horn. That's why, remember in Exodus, when you've got Joseph in Egypt, and the Bible speaks of his power, it says, Joseph had the power of an, an oxen's horn. Or God, God's power. We sing this, I think we sang this a couple of weeks ago. God's power, his might in redemption. What does the psalm say about that? What is his power in redemption? It is his horn. His horn of salvation. Do you see this? His four horns. This is about the, the significance, the strength, the might of the people's enemies. Now that begs a question. You know, you're going to say to me, but you said at the beginning of the sermon, man, you said, you said that this was about encouragement. Like how does, how does a reminder and a confrontation a reminder of the people's, the enemy's power, how does that in any way encourage these people here? Do you see it? But it, but it does. See, I ask you, where are the people when they are getting this vision? Where are they? They are in Jerusalem. They are in Israel. Do you see what God is saying here in this vision? He's saying to the people, Look at the horns. Look at the power of your enemy. But look where you are. I, the Lord your God, have taken you out of the the grasp of that mighty foe. I have taken you from that and I have restored you back to your home. You were lost. You were hopeless. You were despairing and enslaved, and I, the Lord your God, have set you free. 
And friends, tonight, I say to you as a congregation, if you are despairing, look at this and remember your great deliverance. You're despairing tonight? You need encouragement? You recall the extent of what God has saved you from. Is it not the case? What does Scripture say? We were enslaved, weren't we? I mean, we were captive to sin. The enemy had us. We could do nothing. We were hopeless. We were dead. And what has God done in Jesus Christ? What has he done? He has taken those chains. And he has snapped those chains. And he has redeemed us. Do you see that the key to our spiritual encouragement, friends, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. The key is for us to be immersed in the good news Yes, we pray for encouragement. Yeah, of course we do. But we pray gospel prayers. Yes, family worship is important for us to be spiritually encouraged. But we let's forget this idea that we read a couple of verses and and, and we maybe pray for a, a sick friend. Friends, do you see all the family worship? We base it in the gospel. We base it in the good news that we were in the grip of a foe. That we were in captive. And what has Christ done? By his own blood, by his death, by his resurrection, he has gone in there into captivity. He has broken us free. He has picked us up by his love. And he has put our feet back in the promised land. We see encouragement come through past deliverance. Secondly, note here, We see encouragement come from present protection. So you got it, past deliverance. Secondly, present protection. Okay, so we've seen God remind these people of their deliverance. He's saying, look at these four horns, the power of your enemy. I would ask you to do something with me. I would ask you to try, I know that we're talking about 600 BC, but try and put yourself in the situation of these people. Try and put yourself in those people's shoes, the people of God. Like, try and imagine how they feel in Jerusalem. Like, okay, they've been, they've been set free and they're delighted and it's a wonderful thing. Now, back in the land, Jerusalem's a wreck. Their livelihood is a wreck. They're surrounded by people that hate them. I want you to understand how vulnerable they feel. Do you see that? Their their enemies are now intermingling and all around them. And you've got the Persian Empire, and it is strong and it is vast, and and it's sort of looming over Jerusalem all the time. Do you see it? Like, you see that those people there are so exposed and they're frightened and they are incredibly vulnerable. Well, it's into that situation that God provides the second element that you've got here in this vision. Not only does he remind them of their deliverance, the second thing that he does here is he promises to defeat their enemies. And we've had the, would you permit me to say, the strangeness, the weirdness of the four horns. We've had that. We've done four horns. Did you see what's next? Look at verse 20. 
We've now got four, <laughs> four craftsmen. So again, we're saying with Zechariah, as he sees these four craftsmen, he says, what are these? You know, what are these things coming to do? Four craftsmen? I'm like, what is this? Okay, the Hebrew word for craftsman, you've just got to think about the idea of an artisan or what we say, a carpenter or a, a blacksmith. Now, what, what do you think when I say that to you? Blacksmith, artisan, carpenter, craftsman. What's the idea? It's, it's people skilled at making stuff, isn't it? Uh, people skilled at, 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 at sculpting things, forming things. Now, that's right. Of course, that's right. A craftsman does that. But what you have to understand to get this is that Scripture has another idea about a craftsman as well on top of that. And in Scripture, a craftsman was also someone, you know, armed with their tools, armed with a a hammer and so forth. A craftsman was someone who was skilled at breaking things down. A craftsman in Scripture was somebody who was skilled and adept at destruction. Ezekiel 21 says that. It says, here come the craftsmen, those who are skilled at destruction. Now, wait a minute. Take that into the vision. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because look at what God's craftsmen are about to do here. Do you see it? They are coming to do what? They are coming to terrify his enemies. They are coming to break down, cast down, destroy. Friends, do you see? Wait a minute. Do you see what, what God is saying to his people through these craftsmen? He's saying... Look, not only have I rescued you from from captivity and from your foes, but should these people ever try to rise up against you again, I'm there. Here come my craftsmen. I will destroy. Do you see what God's saying? He's saying to his people, you are under the shadow of my wings. He is saying three words to his people with his craftsmen. He is saying, you are safe. You are safe. Can you imagine the, remember the vulnerability? Can you imagine the comfort and the encouragement that that would have meant for these people? And amongst all of that misery and amongst Jerusalem to, to hear that they were safe. But I wonder, friend, do you see that tonight, in here, right now, if you're a Christian, God is saying exactly the same thing to you. Isn't it, uh, isn't it true that Spiritually speaking, even as Christians, we can feel very, very spiritually vulnerable, can't we? It's spiritually exposed, almost. Um, you know, yes, we are saved and we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in the gospel. And we, we know that we're delivered. But our sin... You know, isn't it that our enemy, you know, we're saved, we're delivered, we're in Jerusalem, our enemy, our sin, it's, it's there constantly, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, the evil one looms over us, there is this, there is this constant, constant threat. But yet God says to us tonight, in Jesus Christ, through these craftsmen, he says, you are safe. There is nothing that can happen to you. That I have delivered you. That nothing can threaten 
your salvation, you are safe. And there is something beautiful here. Something beautiful here. I've reading a commentator on this. And he points this out. He says that when the Apostle Paul was writing Romans, now hear me, if you hear nothing else, hear this. When the Apostle Paul was writing Romans, you know that magisterial chapter, Romans chapter 8. The commentator points out that most likely Paul had this, Zechariah chapter 1, open in front of him. That the very same five themes that appear in Romans 8 also appear in the same order in Zechariah chapter 1. Now, do you see how that works? That they both talk about the mercy of God to start with. You know, do you remember that? Hey, return to me and I will return to you in Zechariah chapter 1. Do you, do you remember how God, how Paul renders that idea of the mercy of God in Romans 8? There is now what, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Zechariah goes into the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Paul does in Romans 8. And then they both go into the building up of believers. Then they both go into the prosperity of the believers. Here's the point. How does it end? How does it end? Like, think about this. This is the end of Zechariah chapter 1. Here are the craftsmen. Here's the promise that God is saying, I will protect you as my people. How does Paul deal with that? How does he render it? Will I read it to you? He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Do you see the encouragement of that? Do you see what God is saying here? He's saying, I have not just delivered you I have not just saved you. I have done that eternally. There is nothing, no one that can ever or will ever separate us from our salvation, from the love of God. So we see encouragement come from from us deliverance. We are saved. We see encouragement come from, 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 from what is it? Present protection. God's got us. We end, third thing, encouragement comes from future judgment. Now, it's often said that uh, discouragement for the Christian, it comes when the wicked thrive. I think we see in our heart hearts with with a psalm, why do the wicked prosper? And we, we sort of challenge God and we say, well, why, why would you allow the immoral and ungodly, why would you allow them to, to thrive materially? God, why? Why is it that the wicked seem to enjoy life to the full? Why is that allowed to happen? That's dealt with here. Because this vision of destruction of their enemies by the craftsmen, it shows the people of God here in Jerusalem not only their protection, but the craftsmen here, it, it also shows the people of God the justice of God. That by his covenant with his people, 
God so identifies with his people that those who have mistreated them, those who have been cruel to them, that is, in effect, an offense against God himself. And God promises that he will, he will, he will seek justice for that. And I think you can, you can dig, you can, you can understand that that would have encouraged the people of God in Jerusalem. Like, think about what's happened. They've been taken away from their families, some of them. They've gone up into captivity and they have been treated brutally and viciously by the Babylonians. For years, decades, people have died up there and it's been horrendous. And they hear from God, there will be justice for that. There will be justice. And we understand that, that, that okay, that would encourage them. But how does this idea of God's justice encourage us tonight? Well, you know what, um, what it's like when a, sort of a, a new political figure sort of appears in the, on the scene. Like, everyone in here will remember what it was like when Barack Obama was running for office in the States. <laughs> you remember that? And maybe some of you are old enough to remember what it was like when New Labour, uh, sort of, you know, there's Tony, Tony Blair. And, like, in these sort of circumstances, there's a new guy. And, you know, the world, it seems, is just suddenly euphoric. <laughs> you know, look at this new guy. And there's, there's hope and there's excitement, isn't there? You know, and we all sort of think that they're going to come in and they're going to change government. And society suddenly, through these guys, is going to become a just and it's going to become a, a fair place. And then what happens? Invariably, what happens? A couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, we find out that those guys that we pinned our hopes in, well, they are no better than anybody else. That things are still absolutely flawed. That government doesn't change. Society doesn't become any better. Well, friends, don't you see tonight that our God is different to that? He is entirely different to all earthly rulers. That, that he, that the message here with these craftsmen is that God is there. Wait a minute, he is, he's just. And you say, yes, but he lets the wicked prosper. But he only does it temporarily. And why? So that they might repent and come back to him. That The message here is that those who are ungodly and those who are wicked and those who are unrepentant and those who treat Christians or oppose Christians or persecute Christians, that they will, in the final reckon of things, they will get what is deserved. Do you see any encouragement do you see the encouragement that in the God that you worship, we have one who tonight is perfect? One who is absolutely fair. One who, one who is just. Is there not encouragement in that? And maybe you think that this is how the service is going to end. You think that perhaps, okay, the craftsmen come and destroy the wicked. So, I'm going to say, if you're outside of Christ, there is consequences for unrepentance. Perhaps you think we'll talk about judgment, destruction. Let's flick it. 
Let's talk about something else. Can I say to you, if you are not a Christian here this evening, do you see from this very short vision, do you see what is an offer tonight in Jesus Christ? Do you see that you can be set free from sin? Do you see that? Do you see that you can have the, the, the chains of the guilt in your life? You can have that broken. You can be, you can be rescued by grace this evening. You can be established in a place of eternal, complete and perfect protection. Do you see that that is the offer of the gospel? And do you see how it comes about? How does it come? It comes through the great craftsman. It comes through the great carpenter. He has sculpted this glorious way of salvation, hasn't he? A way of salvation that involved the spilling of his own blood, his own death, his own resurrection. And why? So that tonight, maybe even tonight, you might trust in him. That you might go from being an enemy of God that deserves judgment to being a child of God be loved. That's the offer. That's the offer of Christ. I want you to notice one last thing. The vision ends. And Zechariah is about to get a third vision. And right at the beginning of the third vision, Scripture tells us that Zechariah has to lift up his head. He has to lift up his eyes. Why? Well, I think it's because given this vision that he's got here of deliverance of God and of the protection of God and of the justice of God. Zechariah has done what we should do right now. He has bowed his head in wonder as God. He has bowed his head in worship that we might be free, that we might be delivered. What encouragement, friends. In Christ Jesus, we are what? We are safe. Let's pray.